I'm very happy to welcome Rebecca Bradshaw here tonight. Um, Rebecca's been practicing Vipassana meditation since 1983, and she has been um, teaching since 1993. Um, she teaches frequently at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, and she leads the teen and young adult retreats there, and uh, also uh, is a member of the annual team that teaches the three-month retreat. Um, she teaches at um, other locales in the U.S., at a monastery in Myanmar, and a Spanish language retreat in Puerto Rico. Um, she's the guiding teacher of the Insight Meditation Center of Pioneer Valley in East Hampton, Massachusetts, and she holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and works as a psychotherapist with meditators. And her teachings invite the exploration um, the convergence of love and wisdom. And tonight she's going to talk to us. The title of her talk is Knowing Your Personality Type Can Help Your Meditation. Welcome. Thank you. Is it on? It's on? It doesn't sound on. Can you guys hear me? It's, is it on? No, it's not on. It is on? All right. We'll give it a shot. <laughs> it's always great to be back here at Common Ground. Uh, I flew in from Massachusetts today where it's just as hot and steamy as it is here. Um, always great to be back in my home state. Most of you know I was born and raised here. Um, not far, near Lake Harriet, not far from here. Um, and I like to explain to many people, many of you know me with longer hair, so I like to let people, I like to let people know why it's short. And um, it's short because in uh, January I was in Burma and uh, I ordained temporarily as a nun. You can do that in Burma, it's great. You can be a nun or a monk for just a, whatever length of time you want, and it's considered a, you know, a very meritorious thing to do. And anyway, all the hair goes. Uh, so um, it's a really powerful thing to do. If any of you are interested and in, have any interest in that, um, I highly recommend it. And sometimes I joke, who would have thought I'd get a great haircut out of the deal? You know? <laughs> <laughs> out of ordaining that. <laughs> anyway, it's going to stay short. So, so uh, tonight we're going to talk about the Buddhist personality types. And um, I gave this talk in Ohio last year, and one of the people I know there said, is this like going to be like a Buddhist uh, Briars mix or Briars Myers Briggs or something like that? And I said, well, not exactly. Um, I found it actually helpful. These are helpful teachings that come from the Vasudhimaga, which is one of the commentaries, um, the, the major commentary of the Buddhist teachings, which were compiled a thousand years after the life of the Buddha by uh, Buddha, Buddha Gosa, and it's called the Vasudhimaga, or the Path of Purification, this huge tome, which is basically a synthesis of all the Buddha's teachings and his teachings on meditation. So there's a whole part on like what kind of practices and what kind of um, environments are suitable for the different personality types 
um, they didn't use the word exactly personality types, they said different temperaments, I think. Um, and I found it to be a helpful teaching for myself and also for others, so that's why I wanted to share it with you. So according to the Buddhist teachings, we're all born with a, a primary tendency towards one of the three roots of suffering. Um, we're born in this human realm because we have one of these roots. Of, well, we all have all three roots, but we're born in this world, um, this human world, this human life, with a tendency, uh, a primary tendency, either towards aversion, greed, or confusion. The three roots of suffering. <coughs> And we all work, obviously, we all, like, have to deal with all three of those. But often we'll find that one is stronger uh, than the other. So you could call it our core challenge. And it's often the part of ourselves that we think we have to get rid of or that we least like. Um, it's called our core challenge, but interestingly, it's also our doorway to freedom. The one that's the most primary difficult of those three for us is where we actually learn the most. So uh, we can see it as a challenge, we can see it as a problem, or we can see it as a doorway to freedom. And also, so I'm going to talk about each type and uh, what's helpful to that type. We can also see these instructions of what's helpful for each type as what's helpful for us when one of these three roots is particularly strong, even if it's not our dominant type. So when I talk about an aversive type, you can also think of when aversion is strong, these kinds of conditions might be helpful for you. So you don't have to even look at it as types if that doesn't work for you. So there's... Um, the three, I, there's actually six types. So there's the three types, and each type has an evolved type. So um, the greed type, the evolved type, is um, devotion, devotional or faith. And the aversive type, the evolved, is um, wisdom. And the confused type, the evolved form, is equanimity. So, so they transform towards these more evolved types. So, so that doesn't sound like too pessimistic right off the bat. <laughs> so most of us major in one. Some of us have a double major. <laughs> Some of us major in one and minor in another. <laughs> it was funny when I was leaving the house, um, my sister said, oh, I wish I could come tonight. What are you talking about? And I said, um, oh, I'm talking about um, personality types in Buddhism. She's like, oh, I'd really like to... Uh, hear that one. She says, hmm, I wonder what type you are. And I said, well, there's the aversive, the greedy, and the confused. She said, you're not confused. I said, nope. She said, I don't think of you as so greedy. I said, you're getting warm now. <laughs> <laughs> the aversive type. <laughs> so sometimes by a process of elimination, you kind of can see which one you're left with as your strong type. Sometimes... Um, I think if there's a very easy, 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 easy quiz for which type you are. Yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> so the greed types, everything is yes. And the aversive types, no. And the confused types, hmm, maybe. <laughs> or um, when you walk, they, they say when you walk in a room, the greed types are like, they see what they like about the room. The versive type see the problems in the room. And the confused type 
says, what am I doing in this room? <laughs> and it's also, I think it's great to laugh about these because um, one of the main ways that this really helped me when I started to understand that I was predominantly aversive type, it helped me not to take it so seriously. And that really, that's all you take from this talk that's really useful because before that, I kind of had this idea there's so much aversion, I'm such a bad person because there was so much aversion. And um, when I started to understand that, oh, that's just kind of like my primary task I came in with, I just started to take it much less personally and to judge myself much less. We tend to judge ourselves for our primary um, challenge here, except the greed types, they don't judge themselves quite as much, but the, the, the confused, they think their type's the best, so. <laughs> but, the, but the confused type and the aversive types will tend to judge themselves a lot. Okay, so we'll talk about, first we'll start with my major with aversion. Um, so the aversive types, what they will experience, predominant, the predominant mind states that are experienced are anger, judgment, fear, envy, ill will, control. And their first reaction often, if you ask them to do something or if they want something, would be no. Their first reaction is kind of, it's like this, you know, fear. It's like that kind of a movement. And they're, they're very concerned with avoiding things that are unpleasant or un things that trigger the, 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 um, the unpleasantness. So in the Vasudhi Magha, in the Path of Purification, they describe how each type does some, does different tasks. So we're going to describe how a uh, aversive type might come in this room to sit, to meditate. So an aversive type would um, come in in a rush. They would know which place they wanted to avoid and which meditators they wouldn't want to sit around. And they would um, find that none of the cushions really were looked very good or what... Um, they wanted to sit on, they would notice that there's some new irritating sound in the environment and they'd wonder where it came from. They would kind of throw down their cushion and they would sit rigidly and they'd walk in with like firm, hard steps and they'd be unhappy to see that the same teacher is back again. <laughs> and they'd think maybe their talk's all right, but their tone of voice kind of grates on me. <laughs> this is the most, well, you know, I've always thought aversive types is the most painful. I'm starting to think maybe confused types are, but um, it's a different kind of pain. Aversive types, like, you kind of know you're suffering when anger, fear, ill will, judgment, all of those things are up. You kind of know you're suffering. Suffering. So it's it's um, it's it's sometimes the most motivated of the three to practice. That's actually one of its strengths because it's so unpleasant unpleasant to be an aversive type that you're motivated to like, what can I do about this? And so the task for an aversive type is like, how do you meet mindfulness with aversion? I mean, <laughs> you might do that often, actually, be mindfulness with aversion. <laughs> How do you meet aversion with mindfulness? Um, how, do you, how do you hold that energy? 
how do you hold the energy of aversion? Or how do you increase the tolerance for unpleasantness? It's like you increase the ability to hold unpleasantness without having to get rid of it. Metta is often prescribed for, or it's definitely in the Vasudhimaga, prescribed for those with aversion. We need that softening and the, the kindness of metta. You see, I emphasize it a lot in my teaching. And then also, um, related to metta, the aversive types need to be able to notice pleasantness because basically they notice unpleasantness most of the time. So it's like notice pleasantness, bring in pleasantness. So this isn't a description of why the Vasudhi Magga gives this following description of a dwelling place or a meditation place for one of, they say, call it hating temperament, aversive temperament. A suitable resting place for one of hating temperament is not too high or too low, provided with shade and water, with well-proportioned walls, posts, and steps, with well-prepared frieze and lattice work, brightened with various kinds of painting, with an even, smooth, soft floor, adorned with festoons of flowers and a canopy of many-colored cloth, with bed and chair covered with well-spread, clean, pretty covers smelling sweetly of flowers and perfumes and scents, which makes one happy and glad at the mere sight of it. The right kind of road to his lodging is free from any sort of danger, traverses clean, even ground, and here it is that the lodging's furnishings are neither too many in order to avoid hiding place for places for insects, bugs, snakes, and rats. <laughs> the right kind of inner and outer garments for him are of any superior stuff, such as china cloth, silk, fine cotton, fine linen, quite light and well-dyed, dyed quite pure in color. The right kind of bowl is beautiful. The right kind of road is free of danger. It goes on. Suitable people to serve him are handsome, pleasing, well-bathed, anointed, scented with perfume, <laughs> adorned with the right um, apparel. The right kind of gruel, rice, and hard food has color, smell, and taste. So it goes on and on about like how pleasant the environment should be. Aversive types need pleasantness. They need to be surrounded by that so that it's like the edges, the hard edges of aversion can kind of start to soften so that they or we can be here. Right. Great description. When an aversive type tastes equanimity, the mind state of equanimity, they think, oh my God, what a relief. It's like heaven. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is so great. They really, I'm going to talk about each type and how they relate to equanimity, but for the versive type, it's like, oh, finally a break from this mind of mine. It's helpful for the aversive type since the first energy towards something new tends to be no to understand that and to wait through that no reaction. I understand that about myself. So if somebody suggests something new, my first reaction will often be no, you know. And I like learn to like, oh, just wait and consider the possibility and don't go with that first reaction. And then often, yeah, then it's fine or great or sometimes it's still no, but 
you can give a little bit more about um, uh, a thought through uh, reaction. Aversives are the hardest of the types to get along with because uh, they, they're so good at seeing problems. <laughs> and the, the hard edge that needs to be softened. For meditation object, for all of them, the breath is considered like a universal good meditation object, and that's why it's used so often. It's considered great for the three types. For the aversive type, um, again, metta, metta as a supplement or um, as a meditation, a concentration object is really good. And then the evolved type of the aversive types is um, the, dis the mind of discriminating wisdom. Aversive types tend to have a sharp mind that can cut through and that, that can um, evolve into wisdom. Okay, shall we go on to the greed types? Or sometimes the greed types call themselves the sensuous types. So with the greed types, there's lots of desire. The predominant mind states are craving, discontent, vanity, wanting, just lots of craving, um, lust, just lots of wanting in the mind. And, the, and their first answer when something comes along is yes. Um, so you know those people who are like, they, they, they like to do a lot, they like new experiences, they like pleasant things, there's a lot of that um, kind of outgoing energy. And so they always notice the pleasant, whereas the aversive types might notice the unpleasant a lot, the greed types notice the pleasant. So the greed type would come in here. They walk very confidently, um, kind of glide into the meditation hall and find um, uh, the best cushion and the best spot where they know where that is to see well. And they put their stuff down very neatly and they arrange it well. And they sit with them um, gracefully or um, confidently. And they're glad to see that their favorite teacher is back again. <laughs> So what helps for the greed types, or when greed is very strong in our practice, is um, simplicity and renunciation. So I get, I'll read to you their dwelling place from the Vasudhimaga. A suitable lodging for one of greedy temperament has an unwashed sill and stands level with the ground. It can be either an overhanging rock with an unprepared drip ledge, a grass hut, or a leaf house. It ought to be splattered with dirt, full of bats, dilapidated, <laughs> too high or too low, in bleak surroundings, threatened by lions and tigers, <laughs> with a muddy, uneven path, where even the bed and chair are full of bugs. <laughs> and it should be ugly and unsightly, exciting loathing as soon as looked at. <laughs> Suitable inner and outer garments are those that have torn edges with threads hanging down all around, harsh to the touch like hemp, soiled, heavy, and hard to wear. The right kind of bowl for him is an ugly clay bowl, disfigured, um, let's see here. 
pharmaceutical people to serve him are unsightly, ill-flavored ill with dirty clothes. The right kind of food is, is um, unsightly, stale. Such things as stale buttermilk, sour gruel, curry of old vegetables, or anything that all is that is all that anything at all that is merely for filling the stomach. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it makes one feel a little better about being in a person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, so maybe we don't have to go that far, all right? But but you get the the idea is um, is is um, not to have um, to, to to balance all this looking for pleasantness with a little unpleasantness. Or uh, my friend Annie, who's a, um, a greed type, explained it to me once. She said um, that she was meditating and. In a dark, in a stark room in Burma, it was this room. It just there was like nothing in there. And she said it was so. She said it was such a relief not to have anything in there to want. <laughs> and I didn't under, you know, I didn't understand this for a long time since I, it's not my primary tendency. But one time I was eating. I love. I have a whole thing going with chocolate chip cookies. So I was I was somewhere. I don't remember where it was. And um, I would. It was a, I was a teaching retreat somewhere. They had these chocolate chip cookies that looked good. And so I took one of these cookies. And I started eating the cookie. And the craving that came up, that was, it was so strong because the cookie was so good. It was so strong. I had this thought, wow, it would have been better not even to have started eating the cookie because the craving was so unpleasant and so strong. And if I hadn't started right, it wouldn't be there in the same way. So I kind of understood what this, this meant about like for, for when there's a lot of greed or for greed types, that the simplicity, the renunciation, the, the, um, the lack of the pleasantness to, to latch onto is a kind of relief. So for uh, greed types, it's learning to turn and look at the wanting itself. So when wanting's present, we get very seduced by the, um, when the thing that is wanted is pleasant, we get very seduced by the pleasantness of the object, right? The pleasantness of what we want. And that hides the unpleasantness of craving or wanting. And so it's, it takes, it takes a lot of motivation as, um, a sensuous or greed or desire type to move the attention from the thing that's wanted and all that pleasantness there to the actual wanting itself and to learn that, um, it's not so satisfying, right? That the wanting isn't so satisfying. So it takes, it takes a, more discipline in some ways than it does with the aversive type. With the aversive type, we're more readily willing to turn to look towards the aversion to try to understand that there's so much motivation because the situation's unpleasant. But when the situation's pleasant, to turn to look at greed takes um, motivation or to look at wanting. I think the Buddha was, me and my teaching colleagues are pretty sure the Buddha was a greed type, so you're in good company if you're a greed type. 
So other practices that are good for um, greed types are generosity, because that teaches us to let go, right? teaches us to, uh, it's the opposite of the holding on or grasping, the letting go. We also can start to see the drawbacks in pleasant objects, or what seem to be pleasant objects or pleasant experiences. So as the aversive types tend to only see what's unpleasant about things, the greed types tend to see only what's pleasant. So, um, wow, why did I think of an ice cream cone? Maybe because it's so hot today. But like they would just see an ice cream cone and how great, you know, this ice cream cone's going to taste and everything. They wouldn't see, like, for example, that it, that it, give, it will give them a sugar high and then they'll crash later <laughs> or that the ice cream cone will actually disappear. <laughs> you know, that's not permanent, that it'll go away. That's like seeing, those are, that's seeing the, um, the main thing to see is that, yeah, it's not permanent, it'll change. That's the, that's the unpleasant part of pleasant objects. The breath meditation is great, again, for greed types. The other meditation that um, was prescribed a lot, but which we don't do much in this country, is the 32 parts of the body, which is a meditation where you go through the body and you contemplate 32 parts of the body, and it's everything from hair and teeth and bones to pus and uh, urine and, uh, you know, the whole shebang. And um, the idea is to counteract lust. We don't tend to do that one too much in this country because um, it brings up too much aversion for people or it can seem to people to cultivate aversion, which isn't the, the purpose of it. So we tend to shy away from it. It doesn't, uh, I, I don't know anybody who teaches it actually very much or more than just very short bit. We don't seem to be able to do that in um, a balanced way. But traditionally, that was a practice for um, when greed or lust was strong in the, in the mind. Equanimity to greed types, at first, they're not sure they're into it. It doesn't seem stimulating enough. <laughs> it's kind of, they're, they're, the reaction will sometimes be, oh, it's kind of boring. Um, like something's missing. So often equanimity for a greed type will be an acquired taste that they will over that they over time see that that the piece of equanimity is is actually more satisfying than the um, the thrill of pleasantness or the wanting of pleasantness. And then for greed types, they learn that. Um, Yes is often their first reaction to something new and that they should wait through that first reaction and make a more balanced decision again because they can get overextended very easily or over-involved or too busy. or And um, so it's always yes, 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 and it has to be this, oh, slow down, maybe, um, you know, pull back a little bit. And evolved, it turns into devotion and faith. You can see that that they're they're close. They're not so close, but you can see the same energy of looking towards what's good and beautiful. Um, whereas in greed, we we look for for that through sense objects. With devotion and faith, we look 
through that, through things that are worthy of devotion, like the Dhamma. And last but not least, we have the confused types. Predominant states are torpor, agitation, worry, uncertainty, stubbornness, doubt. And there's sometimes a sense of of, um, disconnection, more disconnection with the um, confused types. There's a lot of confusion and speculation, a lot of endless speculation, this or maybe this, maybe that, indecision, not sure what you're looking for. In the text it says restlessness due to perplexity. And like I've said, I've come to think that this one actually might be the most painful of the three. They're all painful. (laughs) Um, The thing that confused types often say is they're often worried that they're stupid. I've heard confused types say this a lot. Um, But it it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. I think, um, well, I know Sharon Salzberg is a self-proclaimed deluded type, and she's very sharp. I think Obama might be a confused type. He doesn't, he doesn't not because he appears confused, but because um, confused types have, on the positive side, this ability to see all sides of a question. So evolve, they become more equanimous types. And uh, I don't know, my sense is just that he's, he's not an aversive type, that's very clear. Maybe a greed type, but I think maybe confused type predominantly. So yeah. And I think what's most painful about the um, the confused type is there's there's not the sense of knowing where one can land. <coughs> there's a, that sense of disconnect. So a confused type would come in here kind of hesitantly, and they take a long time to decide what cushion or chair they should take. And um, they, like I said, the hesitant steps, and they can't remember the, instruct- the instructions. And what's this teacher's name again? Can't remember the teacher's name. And they're not exactly sure how to sit, so they kind of look at how everybody else is sitting to know how to sit and copy that. And they and they s- sit a little slumped, a little, um, and they wonder if it might have been better to do something else tonight instead of, <laughs> instead of come to meditation. <laughs> so the challenge with the um, the challenge with this type is to is to really is to get here, just to really land in simplicity. You give anything too complex to confuse type, and they're going to be endlessly speculating. So the breath is great. Um, walking practice is great for the confused types. Just like get your feet on the ground, feel the ground. Very body-oriented practice is really good because it's concrete. Too much mind-oriented practice, and there'll be all this going back and forth. The um, confused types also get very pleasant surroundings. Um, So their surroundings are similar to the aversive types. And the idea is that make it pleasant so they can get here, right? It's easier to connect with what's pleasant. 
they're also supposed to have a nice view on their hut that's added. <laughs> a nice, like, wide view. So the thing for confused types is confused types just want the confusion to go away. They just want the indecision to go away. But actually, that's your meditation object. How do you befriend confusion? So you, you switch from seeing as this is something I'm somehow can or supposed to get rid of as how do I connect with this? How do I make it a primary part of my practice? What does it feel like to be in a state of confusion? What can we meet that experience? The other challenge is um, that confused types have to dare to let go of speculation. There's always this hope with the confused types that they're going to figure everything out in the brain and the mind and that if they think long enough and every single side and back and forth and everything, they'll figure it out. out. Have to be willing to just let that go. Come back to the body sitting here, the breath. Have to gain some sense of trust in themselves. Because there's often, like us aversive types, we trust ourselves, yeah. <laughs> but the confused types tend to not trust their own experience. So learning how to really trust what's happening for you. Letting go of the reliance that you'll figure it out intellectually. So traditionally, um, this type is known as the most equanimous. There's a way that they're equanimous. Like it said, like if you're going to travel with somebody, you want to travel with a confused type. Because <laughs> there's a, like you go into the hotel room and the greedy type's like, I want that bed. And the person type's like, I don't want that bed. And the confused type's like, oh, I think that's all right with me. <laughs> so there's a, a sense that there's a seeming um, equanimity. And th there is some truth there, but often what the... Um, as the aversive type, or the uh, confused type gets more and more grounded, they'll actually start to notice um, desire and aversion. It'll start to actually become more obvious because some of the equanimity sometimes is disconnect. But the evolved type is truly equanimous and able to see all sides and hold all sides with balance. So I think sometimes it's helpful for me to, as I said, to know my own type because then I don't take it so seriously. Oh, and what I've also seen is that when you finish with your primary, then you move on to your secondary. So, like for me, my early years of practice, like my first, I don't know, 15 years of practice, I don't remember ever working with wanting. All I remember working with is was anger, sadness, fear, like all these aversive states. And after a time, as I, be able, as I was able to learn how to hold those with some confidence or you know, some ability and some balance, then I started to notice all the greed, all the wanting, right? And then after a number of years of that, then I started to notice all the confusion or delusion. 
So, so it, I think I've seen this. I've heard other people say this too. Like after you really kind of get grip on your primary, then you then you can move on to your uh, secondary, and after you maybe get a little grip on that on your um, on the third one. And as I said, we all we all work with all of them. So what I, I found helpful is not only is it helpful to know my own type, but sometimes for some, with some people it's helpful to know what type they are too. Now I'm not saying go home and, you know, figure out everybody you know and what type they are. But um, like many, many years ago I had a boyfriend and he was a greed type. And he, so he was like, yes, yes. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> and just to uh, um, understand... <laughs> That, that, you know, that that was his type, his tendency, and that was my tendency, and that both of us could kind of stop and hold that tendency uh, was helpful for me in relating with him. Or, or even recently, a few months ago, I was, I was going with a friend of mine. We were going somewhere to, um, on a little road trip for the day to this tea place and a couple other places. Um, Aversive types can tend towards impatience, and um, confu she's a confused type, and they tend to go slowly, <laughs> more measured, you could say, or more hesitantly. And so when I found myself starting to get impatient, I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, she's a confused type. That's how they do things, you know, and so that I was able to actually be more equanimous and um, not pressure her. <laughs> So it can help us be a little bit more skillful sometimes in how we relate to other people when we understand that. It also helps us not to condemn them so much, right? As as I said, with our own types, we don't, as an aversive type, we might condemn others. You guys might have never thought of that, but... Um, you know, like we don't take our own type so seriously and um, and don't judge ourselves for the type we are, then maybe we don't have to uh, judge others either. We can just know that we're all working with um, with our with our with our challenge, our primary challenge, and all of us obviously with all um, three challenges. I think maybe I'll read a little story <laughs> from the Dalai Lama, which I'll end with this, um, which shows perhaps holding our type with type type with some lightness. I think the Dalai Lama is probably um, a greed type, but I'm not sure. But from the story, he seems like he may be. This is from a book of Sharon's called um, A Heart as Wide as the World. We all like pleasant experiences and are fortunate to enjoy them, but if we become lost in attachment, that enjoyment inevitably turns to clinging and then we suffer. At a Buddhist Christian conference I attended at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was speaking about a tour of the monastery he'd been given earlier that day. He began by saying that he was quite impressed that the monastery was able to support itself through the manufacture of cheeses and fruitcakes. 
Then in the midst of this formal presentation with television cameras rolling, the Dalai Lama said, I was presented with a piece of the homemade cheese, which was very good, but really I wanted some cake. <laughs> he laughed uproariously and repeated, it was so unfortunate, really I was hoping someone would offer me some cake, but no one did. <laughs> His childlike candor was wonderful with nothing manipulative about it. Clearly, he could be quite happy without a piece of the fruitcake, and some part of the state of happiness was the very ability to laugh at his desire for cake, as well as to be as being able to speak about it unabashedly before dignitaries of two religions and a television audience. <laughs> so I love that sense, right? That sense of lightness um, with what is going through the heart and mind. And, I hope, as I said, I started this talk with that, and I'll end it with that, but I hope that um, we can learn to hold our primary challenge, um, and then our secondary and third one, but learn to hold these challenges with, uh, with lightness of heart and mind. Let's sit for a minute, and then we'll have some time for questions. So thank you for your attention, and uh, if you have any questions either on the talk subject or something else, I'm happy to take some time to talk. Yes? Have you spoke of Myers Briggs types? Have you found a correlation between or amongst these and those? I some I'm I haven't um, there's something that correlates. There's is it the Enneagram, maybe? I've seen something, and I can't remember at the moment what it is, but some kind of something like that that correlates. It might be the Enneagram. I'm spacing on it at the moment. Hmm, not sure. Have, do you think of, can you think of anything like that that correlates? Or? No. Yeah. Anybody else? <laughs> yeah? Yes, you. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the thing about where you come from? Are they like karmic patterns or something? Sounds like a good guess to me. Yeah, karmic patterns. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I would think that that would be the explanation that that, that uh, 
the stream, right? The karmic, the stream, what it's strongest in is a tendency. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we all have to deal with all three, so, yeah. Yeah, question? Uh-huh. Hi, um, I have a question. Why I'm curious why, what makes you guys feel the Buddha was like a free personality? And then also just um, kind of a comment. I heard a talk on this subject a while ago, and since then I've been watching it in myself, I mean, I'm obviously an aversive personality, but I could notice, like, different situations bring up different parts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like this situation, I'm more of this part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we can find unpleasantness triggers aversion or um, pleasantness triggers greed or wanting neutrality. Um, we, we think the Buddha's a greed type because he talks about greed so much. <laughs> you know, he talks about, like, he talks about greed much more than he talks about aversion when you look at the, the teachings. Yeah, I don't know, just intuition, but we all agree, all my teaching colleagues and I, this is the kind of stuff we talk about when we teach the three-month course. Huh, what personality type was the Buddha? (laughs) But, uh, yeah. It seems like I can easily understand the aversive type, and I can pretty well understand the deluded type, but yeah, I think the one that we have in the third category, we don't understand as well. Like for me, I'm primary aversion, then greed, then confusion. You might be primary aversion, then confusion, then greed, right? Um, also, the Buddha, I mean, like he just left home and went out to all these adventures and tried this and tried that and tried this and tried that. It's very, it, that's to me feels very much like the Greek type, you know? Oh, let's try this. Let's try that, you know? (laughs) That kind of wild yes for the adventure that he had. It feels to me very much like that. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Who knows in the end? (laughs) Yes. One of the things that I've sort of been working through, and I'm not sure where this fits in this kind of personality text, but I've come to realize that I have pretty high expectations of myself and mm-hmm. people, and um, I sort of inevitably set myself up for disappointment. And so where would that fit, and say from the Buddhist teaching, how do you suggest working? Mm-hmm. So the question, if you didn't hear, was about... Um, having a lot of high expectations for herself and other people and then getting disappointed and how that might fit in. Hmm. Well, the, I just want to say first what... 
what I like about what you said is that you're, you're noticing this and you're starting to um, see it as a pattern, and that gives you some hope to um, see it kind of earlier and earlier, right? Because first of all, you, you, you see it after you're disappointed, right? <laughs> and then at some point you start to question the expectations which come actually before the, the, the disappointment and start to... Um, it's almost like you start to be more re you're starting to be more realistic. That's that's great. My friend um my friend Greg says that he sees the process of practice as a continual lowering of his expectations. <laughs> it works, doesn't it? Like you all get it. You're laughing, right? So it's like um does that work for you? <laughs> um, I mean, sometimes that comes from a certain kind of harshness, right? A harshness towards ourselves and a harshness towards others. Um, it could come from any, if you were, wanted to talk about these roots, it could come from any of these three roots. Sometimes... Um, Sometimes there's these patterns also that we just learn early for different reasons in different situations, and uh, they get very strongly ingrained. I think it's great to lower our expectations. <laughs> Not our standards. <laughs> Greg's very clear about that, but... Our, but um, There's so much suffering in the kind of... It feels to me like what you're describing is also somewhat um, culturally based. We, we There's a certain harshness in, in Western culture or American culture, predominant American culture, not every culture within this country, but the predominant paradigm is very harsh and high expectation, competition, individualism, um, perfectionism, all of these kinds of... Um, It, it, the, the harshness of it. And for me, a lot of practices is like a softening into our humanity, our own. And then when we can soften into our own humanity, we can soften into the humanity of others. And so it's almost, I mean, there's something healthy about disappointment too. Charlotte Joko Beck says practice has to be a process of endless disappointment, which is really interesting. And, and Trungpa Rinpoche says disappointment is a sign of basic intelligence. Like, what are they talking about or what are they pointing to? And I think um, the more and more that we ground ourselves and really get here and present in what this human life really is, It, it's disappointing. We we tend to live in um, in in our hopes and our wishes for how life is instead of in actual contact with what it is. And then when we can actually be in contact, there's a lot of disappointment. But on the other side of that disappointment, that's not the end. The other side is freedom. The the freedom to actually be um, in touch open-eyed, open heart, open mind with the truth of how hard it is to be a human being.
it's a relief. And that, and then also we can also see when we can get that grounded that we also see the beauty too. So it's not we just see the hard part, but we also see the generosity, the kindness, the um, joy, the beauty, and all that part of the human life too. But but that process of disappointment of actually landing here and coming out of living in our our ideas about how life should be is a good process. It's a good process. But it's but a lot of people are we're not willing to go through it because we won't go we're not willing to go through the disappointment. Does this make sense? Is it disappointing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but these are predispositions that would lead us to suffer in one way yeah. more than another and sure. we can't get over them so easily, but they have an upside, kind of a destination. Is there some way, since we're going to be like this for a while, that we can go with it and engage in society in certain ways rather than others so that we can be productive yes, and, and play on the upside? Yeah, so the question is, like, how do we, since we're going to have these tendencies for a while probably, like, how do we go forward into society in a positive manner, even given that we have these, right? I think understanding what our basic tendency is and to know where we're, we tend to get derailed can make us more effective because we can look out for it. So for me, knowing that um, I have a tendency to see problems, um, I have to learn to balance that with, with the positive. So I love to talk about problems. Like, that's where I went to, right, with her, right? So I was like, disappointment, yeah, that's so great, right? And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, I just did it. It was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah everybody might not work that way, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, I have to remember for, to, to also talk about some of the positive, right, or people. I could talk about disappointment all night and be happy about it. But, <laughs> but it leads you, maybe, to be a therapist, a very effective therapist. What can we do if we're the confused? <laughs> the confused types can be good um, with equanimity. So bringing in the ability to see different viewpoints and to um, not be overly attached to one's own opinion, that's really useful, right, in this world. So much suffering comes from attachment to views and opinions, and the confused types don't tend to have that that kind of attachment to their own ideas about what's right or what should be happening or, you know, all of that attachment they don't tend to have. So there's tends to be more of um more balance. And and peacemakers often come from the from I would say from the confused types. Because there's that um that ability to hold more different opinions and to and to want to keep things peaceful, it's great, yeah, yeah. And it's, so I think each type often offers different um, uh, ways of healing, right? A subversive types will give you the cutting through. That can be healing, right? But then sometimes you need something different than that. So 
um, some equanimity and non-attachment to views and opinions. Great. And um, the enthusiasm of greed types, wonderful. There's a lot of enthusiasm and uh, uh, um, adventuresomeness, maybe you could say. So they all have definitely positive things to offer. Faith, faith of the greed types is great, good, helpful. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the boyfriend who was a very different. Yeah, family. yeah. What? Do you have any general advice for relationships? If people are basically different. Yeah, well, the different types often are attracted to each other, right? So it's to understand or to let, um, you, it's almost like let the person be who they are and It's to increase the understanding and kindness in, in our hearts and our minds. Like my, okay, I'm an aversive type. My partner's primarily a deluded type or a confused type. The, deluded is a traditional word, but it doesn't work for us so well. Confused type, right? And so I have to, again, when he's like not so fast to do things and maybe more hesitant or slow, I have to like be, remember to be patient with that rather than to try to think that he shouldn't be that way or he should change or something, which would be an aversive way of looking at it. <laughs> he should change. <laughs> um, so to inc- I'd say it's, it's all about increasing understanding and from that increasing um, non-judgment or, yeah, ability to hold that. Is there something I'm missing in the question, or was that helpful? I'm wondering, I'm thinking that maybe I am confused. No. I'm glad when I say, <laughs> <laughs> Baby, baby, baby! <laughs> 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 oh, I think was probably very Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, you know, I go flow a lot, but I think overall, I just like with the flow, with the flow, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Without knowing it. Yeah, without knowing it. Maybe you're a confused <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So understanding yourself like that might help you to have more understanding of how you function in a relationship and where you may need um, to take better care of yourself or to, you know, to negotiate some kind of something that uh, helps you to be more connected with what you want. <laughs> we often say if you don't know which type you are, you're a confused type. Because <laughs> the greed and the aversive types say, well, recognize themselves pretty damn quickly. And the confused types will say, well, you know, sometimes I see some greed and sometimes I see some aversion. So I could be one of those two. Or maybe I'm a confused type, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of the challenges in my relationship with my partner. As an aversive type, I know what I want. And as a confused type, he takes longer. So how do I give him the space 
to figure out what he actually really wants, right? Instead of, yeah. Yes. I'd like to know a little bit more about your experience where you got your haircut. Uh-huh. With being the mom for the nun. Yes. Um, and how, how would one be able to do something like that? So the, the place that I teach in Burma, I actually, I'm not probably going to teach there anymore because um, I was in some ways filling in for Stephen Smith. This retreat was started by Stephen Smith and Michelle McDonald with Sayada Ulakana, who is the abbot of a monastery in the Sagain Hills region of Burma. And every January they do a three-week retreat called the Fusion Retreat. So it has the Burmese Sayada and it has two Western teachers. And so it's a great retreat because you get the very traditional Buddhist Mahasi-style, Burmese-style practice instructions, but you also get Western teachers who help kind of you understand the cultural situation going on. And so Stephen Smith was um, banned from the country because he had gone to visit Aung San which was not a good thing to do if you want to get back into Burma. So he was banned for 10 years, but they've let him back in, so I probably won't teach there anymore. But this last time, last year, I didn't have to teach. I got to practice, which was great. And um, so in Burma, you can uh, take temporary vows as a nun or a monk, and you uh, shave your head and wear the robes <laughs> and take the... Um, the, for the nuns, it's uh, the eight precepts. For the monks, it's a lot more, much more complicated. Um, and so this year, there were three women who um, ordained temporarily and two men. So there are five of us. It's not uncommon. It's, it's really, for me, it was, It felt like I, I had stepped into um, a lineage or a river in a way that I hadn't experienced before, and like a sisterhood. And um, I felt, the, the, the way I explained it is I felt like a daughter of the Buddha. Whatever that means, it was very... Um, I found a whole devotional side. I'm not a, that doesn't, is my tendency, but my devotional side gets strongly activated. And um, also a lot on renunciation, because for women, shaving their head is big time renunciation. Um, it was so interesting because two years ago when I taught there, I wanted to ordain, and I planned to ordain. A friend of mine had gone with me. We were going to ordain together, and my teacher got sick, and I had to teach. And so I couldn't ordain because I wasn't going to do that and teach. That would have been too much because you do feel kind of vulnerable at first. And this year I had given up on the idea of ordaining, so I was there, and uh, a young friend said, would you take pictures of my ordination? So I said to my teacher, Michelle, I said, well, I don't know if I want to take pictures of the ordination because I'll be sad it's not me. And I thought, well, and I had a half hour to make up my mind. <laughs> and in a half hour, I said, I'm going to do it. And um, I was terrified, terrified. And um, for two days afterwards, I was pretty terrified. I was like, what have I done? I'd look in the mirror, and I was like, what have I done? And... Um, then I started to love it and really did 
um, there was such a protection of lineage, I felt, in the robes. And um, I felt like it really helped my practice, and it was beautiful. Beautiful. I'd do it again. I hope to do it again. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know what else more I can say, but it's one of the best things I ever did in my life. And the reason why I chose to do it in that half hour, actually, is that it was the one thing on my bucket list. <laughs> really, it was the only thing. It was the only thing I really wanted to do before I died. So now I've done it, and that's good. It's good to have that completed. <laughs> I thought I would regret it if I didn't. I was scared. <laughs> really scared. <laughs> yeah. um, you said you liked the word confusion instead of delusion, and I'm the read type and I hate the word read because I think our culture implies accumulation of stuff. I think it just you know, like that. So is, is there a word? <laughs> you want another word. <laughs> Desire type. That'll work. Yeah, that is better. Yeah, Because greed got, sounds... What can we call us aversive types then? Discerning. <laughs> Discerning types. <laughs> That's two gods too sugar coated, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, on the evolved type of the of your challenge. So if you're a greed type, to call on the devotion and faith. And the devotion and faith is putting your wanting in a place that is worthy of respect. Mm-hmm. So it's taking that wanting but putting it in a healthy, helpful place. And the aversive types could call on on the wisdom of the cutting through, of that cutting through energy, the discerning, the, the ability to discern. And that confused types could call on that ability to be balanced and more equanimous. And so I, I would call on, not from the other, another type, but call on the evolved um, type with, with the challenge that you have. Yeah. That would seem helpful. Maybe one more or two more questions, and then we'll probably stop. It's getting late. Mm-hmm. Um, with the confused type, calling on the equanimity, I'm already busy doubting my own, you know, this sense of being so unsettled. Yeah. Sense of, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm almost shaking, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't feel there's a ground to be equanimous or yeah, yeah. That's why it's the most painful type. So, as I'm sitting, you know, and I feel this, this 
earth, earth energy. That no, that's what you do. You go, you feel. It's really grounding and and um, very. You get you get out of the mind. You got to get out of the mind. So it's like feel the foot on the ground, or feel the buttocks on the cushion, or just feel the breath. There's that simplicity, and that you can trust that. So it's very getting very grounded physically is going to be the most helpful, I think. Does that sound all right? Yeah. Yeah, I find. Maybe. I, yeah. I find uh, movement, you know, dance. Yes, that's you know, good. Like somehow the story becomes just a story. Yeah. Um, when I can move it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's physical again. We're getting into the body again. That's good. Right. Yeah. Sounds like the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, You added the body of your talk. You said, uh, hold your challenges with lightness of heart and mind. And and for other people as well. And I was reminded of a quote I had heard, and that was, be kind for everyone you meet, is fighting a hard battle. Maybe that's a good place to end. I like that. Yeah. Let's sit for a minute. Be kind to everyone you meet, for everyone is fighting the hard battle. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.